open your copy of the scripture, Matthew chapter 10. I will uh, cherish that rest of my life on earth. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Harvest workers empowered for the work. It's the title for this message this Lord's Day morning. The disciples of our Lord were not spiritual superstars. On the contrary, they were regular Joes. They were ordinary men chosen to do an extraordinary work. To work in the harvest field of humanity. The Lord's choice of such men is contrary to the way people usually select people for important work. Important jobs. Important positions and posts. Whenever I think about the disciples, I'm reminded of a book, um, for instance, by David Halberstam. His book was entitled, The Best and the Brightest. The title refers to uh, President Kennedy's cabinet officers, also known as whiz kids. They were considered to be men of uh, great accomplishment, thus the idea, the appellation, the best and brightest. They were considered that because they believed that they would be the best and the brightest for administering the U.S. government. In choosing the disciples, Jesus did not select from the best and the brightest. (laughs) He didn't select the religious leaders of Israel. Neither were they the academic elites. They were just common men. Or it's choices in general with respect to salvation. The Lord, um, when he saves, he doesn't go out looking for the brightest bulbs in the box. He doesn't go out looking for the elite, the creme la de creme. He, he is not looking for those kind of people. It's not that he won't save them, but they're not the target because God disdains human wisdom. Human wisdom says those are the kind of people you need for any kind of work. And God says, no, 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 no. And what he has done, he has chosen, for the most part, ordinary people. And I'm glad. Because if he hadn't done that, I'd have been left out. If you look with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we can see uh, this is showcased here in this passage that God selects the people that the world would not necessarily choose. Paul has been arguing with the Corinthians trying to undermine, undercut their fascination with human wisdom. And he wanted to point to them to show that God doesn't function according to human wisdom, human standards. 
And the way to show them this was to say, guys, look at yourselves and see the kind of people you are. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul writes, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are. Let's just stop there and let's just pull out uh, some truths here briefly and apply it. The word calling is talking about the call to salvation. God sovereignly, effectively, or efficaciously called men from their sin to salvation. This call is always effective. Whenever the gospel is heard by one who is going to be saved by God, they hear and they believe. That is the summons to salvation, the divine call. He's saying, brethren, you Corinthians, consider your calling. You who are called to salvation, understand that not many were of you are wise. That word wise, you have to understand the background here. He is talking about Greek intellectual or philosopher class. Not many of you came from that group of people. Notice it further states here, according to the flesh, human standards. You see, human standards say, let me go find the philosophers. Let me go find the academic elites. Nothing wrong with them. Let me go find them. And Paul is saying, guys, not many of you come from that circle. Not many mighty, the politically powerful. You don't move and shake in Athens. To put it in our terms, Washington, D.C. Not many noble, verse 26. The upper class, the Greek, the well-born. <laughs> the aristocracy. No, that's not what God does. By and large, he saves ordinary people who do not stand out in society. People who are not Phi Beta Kappas. If you got one, that's okay. If you are one, that's okay. People who are listed in who's who are make national headlines. There are some of them, not many. God doesn't overlook them. God does choose people like that, and that's good. I'm glad he does. There are some who are intellectually gifted. There are some who have risen to the top of the academic world. There are some who are brilliant Christians. I thank God for them. Paul is not saying he doesn't choose any of them, just not many of them. But it's good that he has. And let me tell you why. I was discussing this issue with someone yesterday and, uh, in, in college with um, they're going to learn and I learned years and years ago was that here are all of these people who have um, high intelligence and they're on the devil's side. They promote all the lies, evolution and everything else. 
I had to think about it. I said, wait a minute, the, the word of God is true. And there has, has to be some people who are intellectually gifted, people who have high intelligence, who are Christians and believe the Bible. And you know what? I discovered there are people like that. And I read their books. And I've been informed, oh yes, they know the science. They've got the terminal degrees. They have the PhDs, all of that. Postdoctoral fellowships. They do all of that stuff, but they believe the Word of God. And they know how to interact with people like that. And they can show you the Word of God can be trusted. So I'm thankful for people like that. So don't walk out of here thinking God has no use for people like that. Yes, He does. But He doesn't choose people like that to demonstrate His power. He chooses ordinary people. You see, God's work, His honor, His praise, His purposes do not ultimately depend upon the human instrument. God can and God does use plain old folk just like you. (laughs) People like us. People who simply avail themselves of God and say, Lord, here I am. I'm available. Uh, uh, Use me. So it was at Corinth. He did it. Paul, Paul was no uh, intellectual midget. (laughs) The apostle Paul was a brilliant man. Do understand that. Some have suggested if Paul lived in our day, he'd have three PhDs behind his name. Yeah, he was intellectually gifted. But Paul never trumpeted his intellectual prowess. Paul understood that in serving Christ, it, it wasn't about his brain, but it was about the power of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, let me show you this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 7, Paul is writing in context here about the New Covenant. The New Covenant ministry that was inaugurated by our Lord Jesus' death on the cross and brought to effect by his life, death, and resurrection. And Paul says in verse 7, but we have this treasure this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from men let me uh, unfold this briefly treasure the new covenant gospel of Jesus Christ that's the treasure by the way may I just elaborate on this for a moment that is valuable There's nothing as valuable as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Its value is, it is the means whereby God saves sinners. And Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, clay pots, cheap, breakable vessels, expendable vessels. The Apostle Paul referred to himself and all heralds of the gospel as cheap clay pots that are breakable and expendable. Why is this? Why does God commit his treasure to such vessels who are 
breakable and expendable and cheap. Verse 7, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. That's the answer. Salvation is the result of God's power and not the power of the messengers. It's not in the human instrument. It's in the power of God. Luke chapter 6. If you'd like to turn there with me. Luke chapter 6. God chooses ordinary people. Chose these men. Luke chapter 6. Verse 12. Here we see the call of the 12 to be apostles. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. This was a unique moment in the life of Christ. A unique moment for the men he would choose. Jesus spent the entire night communicating with God the Father. It was an inter-Trinitarian communication about who would be selected for the significant task of representing Messiah in the harvest field of humanity. This was not an issue that was taken lightly. The Father and the Son spent the entire night conversing in prayer about this. The father's choices were the son's choices. The men that were selected, the redeemed one, the exception, of course, being Judas Iscariot, they belonged to the father. John 17, 6 tells us this. As Jesus was headed to the cross, he looked reflectively upon the life of those men that he had chosen and he says this, I have manifested, he said this to the Father in a prayer, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. How were they the fathers before the Father gave them to Jesus? They were the fathers because they belonged to him by election. Before there was a such thing as time, what God did, he selected these men to be the apostles of Jesus Christ. They belonged to him. Their names were already put in the Lamb's book of life. The men were all, it was already determined then that they would be redeemed and they would serve Christ. That this moment would come that we're looking at now. And you see what happens. Verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose them, chose 12 of them whom we also named apostles. The father and the son's choice and the names are listed in verses 15 through 16. Our text in Matthew is chronologically subsequent, of course, to this event that we just talked about here in this text. 
Matthew's text is about sending the workers into the harvest. Let's look at that one verse now. (laughs) Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits. Let's just stop there. Now, let me show you how this is connected with the previous um, text. The Greek text of this verse begins with the conjunction chi, K-A-I, and it literally could be translated this way, and Jesus summoned his 12 disciples. This is a continuation of our Lord's concern here in this text, verse 1, his concern about the massive crowds he metaphorically referred to as the harvest. Remember verse uh, 37, it says, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And then he said, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest, talking to his disciples. People in the harvest. People who are headed to the harvest of judgment. As we saw last week, and it needs to be stated again, that there are people that you see, that you work with, you go to school with, that in your family, that that are in the harvest who are unsaved, they're headed to judgment. There is coming a divine judgment for sinners, and they will be reaped in judgment. Jesus knew this, and Jesus talks about it in a parable later in Matthew. And Jesus sees these people, and he has compassion for people like that. He knows judgment is coming. But he also knows that in that harvest there are those who will be harvested unto salvation. The harvest unto salvation And so Jesus commanded his disciples to pray that the Lord would send workers into the harvest to harvest men for salvation. Now, the prayer was answered. (laughs) They must have prayed and Jesus called them. said, come here, guys. I'm going to send you. You're my disciples. You're my learners. You're my followers. I'm going to send you into the harvest. And to do that, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, let's talk about authority for a moment. It must be understood that the original and ultimate authority resides with God. Do understand that no one gave him his authority. His authority is inherent or intrinsic. His authority comes because he's God. Anybody else who has any authority on whatever level of life in the world, in society, in government, it has been delegated to them by God. To have authority is to have the right to act and the power to enforce what you declare. And that's important. Because there's nothing as terrible as saying you have authority, but you can't do anything to enforce your authority. It's one thing to call yourself the boss, but nobody listens to you. (laughs) This word authority. 
I want to illustrate from American history again to understand how authority for these men works, how it is to work. In 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education struck down separate but equal schools in the U.S. Supreme Court of the United States had the legal authority to do that because they had that authority vested in them by the U.S. Constitution. But to my knowledge, they didn't have the, uh, the power to enforce that ruling. They can say it, but people can say, nah, I ain't doing it. Three years later, in 1957, the Little Rock Nine, nine black students sought to integrate Little Rock, Arkansas Central High School. Orville Faubus, he's the governor, he said, no, y'all ain't coming in here. He didn't have the legal right to do so, but he said, I'm, a, I'm not letting y'all in. The other element of authority is this, the power of enforcement. Supreme Court said, yes, you can go, that business is over with. The power of, of enforcement resided with the executive branch of the U.S. government. The governor of Arkansas said, no, President Dwight D. Eisenhower exercised his authority, his right to act, and sent to Arkansas the 101st Airborne Division, federal troops. In other words, yes, you are, because I got more power than you do, Gov. <laughs> so we're going to see if the Little Rock Nine gets in, because here come my boys. So here come the federal troops, and guess what? The Little Rock Nine, they went to school there. See, what I'm doing is illustrating the authority's right to act and the power to enforce its right to act. That is the kind of authority that Jesus gave to his disciples in the spiritual realm. He gave them the right to cast out demons, but he also gave them the power to pull it off. They're called unclean spirits. They're called unclean because they're morally impure. They are in, in utter contrast to the unfallen angels who are holy, who are pure, who are righteous. With this power granted to them, the disciples would expel the demons from those they held captive. To remove them, to cast them out. Now, you need to understand something. This is a good lesson for us. There, uh, the, this authority was to be exercised in conscious faith, dependent faith on the Lord. Um, I don't know if you guys remember this. If you're a Bible reader, you do. This power was given to them by Jesus. And they sought to exercise it, and they failed. They gloriously, or shall I say, ingloriously failed. In Mark chapter 9, some of the disciples remained at the bottom of the mountain. Jesus took up the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, to the Mount of Transfiguration, and he, he comes back, and there was a man whose son was demon-possessed. Mark chapter 9. And the man was, um, he brought his son to Jesus and tells him the whole thing. And um, Jesus discovered that they couldn't cast 
out the demon. Verse 18, he says, uh, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. The unbelieving generation included those disciples who remained. They had the power to do it. Jesus expected them to do it, but they didn't do it. So Jesus had to do it himself. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. You can see it there. You can read it later if you choose. The man even wondered uh, if Jesus could help him. He said, if you can, verse 23. The reason he said, if you can, is because his disciples hadn't. He said, well, maybe you can't either. Jesus said, all things are possible to him who believes. Context, expelling the demon. The man said, I believe, but help my unbelief. See, the disciples didn't help the man's unbelief. Because of their powerlessness, inability to do what Christ had commanded them and empowered them to do, the man said, I'm just not sure about this. Jesus did rebuke the demon. Now, what happened? When it was all said and done, verse 28, when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. You know what they tried to do? They wanted to do the work of God without depending on God. Isn't that like us? You know, you know you can do it and you can forget to pray. Just think, I'm just going to do it. No, you, you have to depend on the Lord's power. I don't care what your spiritual gift is, whatever talent you have in serving the Lord, you, you better pray. You better trust him. So Jesus says, because you didn't pray. You failed. They thought they could do it on their own. Now, again, in Matthew 10, 1, not only over the unclean spirits, but also to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Bible readers, if you pay attention, when you read the bottom of verse 1, you say, that sounds familiar. I, I, did I not just read that? Yes, you did. Verse 35 of chapter 9 of Matthew 10, uh, 9, it says, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Verbatim. The language used about Jesus is used about the disciples. They would experience the same result as Jesus did. They were given his authority. They had the supernatural authority and power of Jesus conferred upon them. So they would do exactly what Jesus had been doing. Exactly what they had seen him do. The question may be asked. Why did they need this authority? That's a good question. I know you've been up all night at wondering about that. <laughs> In Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, 
we'll get to this later, but I just want to pull this out. And as you go, Jesus tells him, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. Um, do this. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse the lepers. Cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. Oh. You know what? To validate their preaching, they had the expression of supernatural power. People could hear the kingdom of God is near, the rule of God, the triumph of God is near, his power is near. How do we know that? Let me heal you sick. Raise your dead and cleanse your lepers, cast out your demons. Then you know that the kingdom of God is near. You know the rule of God is here. You know that God is triumphing. Look what he is doing. He is doing only what God can do. He knew then that the message was true. It was backed up by the power. It's very important. The message is uh, done that way, delivered uh, at that point in redemptive history. The same thing happened in another case in a couple other places I'd like to show you. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. I hope you don't mind going through the Bible uh, with me this morning. We need to connect the dots, do we not? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, he refuting these false prophets, false teachers that invaded the church at Corinth, and he wanted to say, I'm a true one, and those guys are not. Paul, how do I know the true ones from the false ones? I'm glad you asked. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Are you all there? The signs of a true apostle were performed among you, you Corinthians, with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. When Paul was in Corinth, not only did he preach the gospel, but he performed those miraculous deeds and signs and wonders, and people had to know, oh, yes, yes, yes. The gospel is true. It's backed up by the mighty power of God. And those Corinthians, they saw it with their own eyeballs. And Paul was reminding of it. Remember when I was there with you? These phonies coming here, they can't do that because they're not true apostles. But the true apostles are backed up by a display of divine power. As Paul's argument helped freedom, free them from the liars who claimed to speak for God, but who actually did not. This is really, really, really important. Hebrews chapter 2 is another thing we see it here, written to Jews, obviously, Hebrews. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How will we escape? escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was the first spoken through the Lord speaking of the Lord Jesus of course it was confirmed to us by those who heard it it was first the gospel the salvation that it contains first spoken by Jesus Christ and then to those who heard him 
And then verse 4. God also testifying with them. That's how the confirmation came. By signs and wonders. And by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. According to his own will. Confirming and affirming. Testifying to the reality of the truth of the gospel. Well, let me go back to Matthew 10. Let me uh, get close to concluding. This authority was given to the 12. That included Judas Iscariot. He cast out demons, presumably. He healed the sick, raised the dead, healed lepers. He preached the gospel. But Judas was a false disciple. Jesus said in John six seventy one, he's a devil. He wasn't saved. Judas proclaimed the truth to others, but didn't believe it himself. He pointed men to salvation, but didn't receive it himself. He was with Jesus Christ, listened to him, saw his miracles, saw his unparalleled wisdom, and yet he rejected him. What a tragedy. Exposed to the truth of God incarnate in all that he said and did and said, no, thank you. So we can learn from this that the possession of and use of such power is not necessarily an indication of the user's salvation. Matthew, just think, write this down, remember this. Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Many will come to Jesus and say, but did I not cast out demons in your name? By the way, going to church doesn't mean you're saved. Singing songs of Zion or the gospel songs and doesn't mean you're saved. It's not a necessarily a good indication. I'm not saying you're not. I'm saying don't look to those things. Because Judas was with the Son of God for three years. And Judas is in hell today. Make sure you really know the Savior. Make sure he has really transformed your life beyond the superficial. Make sure you really belong to him. That you are really a person who has a new heart, a new spirit. And you love and follow Jesus Christ publicly and privately. That he is your all in all you believe his word make sure of that don't be a Judas because he had all he had more than you did being able to do all those things but yet he was lost the apostolic age is over no more apostles John was the final one he wrote uh, Revelation in AD 95 or so how do we validate the message today? Because God is not doing that now.
I've yet to perform my first miracle. I'll do it if the Lord wants me to. Scripture is self-attesting. Self it's self-authenticating. It's self-validating. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. What the Holy Spirit does, he, in His power, He applies the Word of God to the heart of the individual who hears it and brings them to salvation. The Thessalonian church experienced that. They, they knew what it was like to hear the gospel. And the Apostle Paul says to them this about it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 hear the word of God for this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men but for what it really is the word of God how did they know it was the word of God it's because the Holy Spirit took the word and applied it to their hearts and they knew it was the word of God coming from the lips of the Apostle Paul. Thessalonica, and by the way, they hadn't been brought up in Sunday school, didn't know anything about Awana, they didn't know anything about VBS. There's none of that. Paul comes to town, he preaches the gospel, they hear the word of God and they believe. And notice verse 13, which also performs his work in you who believes. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, this is what happens. God's word works in you to transform you, to sanctify you. You won't be the same. But I got one more thing. You don't mind, do you? People committed to unbelief will not necessarily be persuaded by a miracle. No. See, people think, well, all we need to do is have some signs and wonders. That's all we need to do. We need some miracles. Pastor, why don't you do a few miracles and, boy, you'll have them lined up out there. Oh, I probably would for a while. People committed to unbelief won't be persuaded even by the supernatural. You say, how do you know that? Amen, brother. <laughs> Luke chapter 16. <laughs> Remember uh, the story of Lazarus and the rich man? Jesus tells his story. Luke 16. I'm not going through the whole thing. Time is about us, uh, over. Remember he wanted um, Jesus and Lazarus who was in Abraham's bosom, that is paradise. Go tell my brothers on earth, don't come here. He was in Hades and he was suffering. Oh, please tell him, go. And Jesus said, mm-mm. Or Abraham, and the story says, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Who might be rising from the dead? Let me tell you something. The word of God is sufficient. It is sufficient for salvation. It is sufficient for our life. You don't need to add anything to the word of God. You just need to know it. There are too many shallow Christians running around here. They don't know the word of God very much. And so they don't really understand how sufficient it is. It'll meet your need. The word of God through the illumination of the Holy Spirit is powerful enough in what it teaches about redemption, sanctification, to be all sufficient. It is enough. It's enough. It's enough for life and godliness. We just preach it. It'll save. Save all that God wants to save. When you go into the harvest field, you go with the gospel. When you go with the gospel, you're going with all that's necessary. All that is sufficient to save sinners. The Apostle Paul believed it. In Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Word of God is what we need. The Word of God is what we share. And the Word of God will accomplish its work. That's all you need to do. Just share the word of God in the harvest. You'll be effective as God chooses to use you. Amen. Amen. Let's bow together in, in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you and give you glory and praise. For those who are saved in this building, have been brought out of the harvest this of judgment and now have been harvested, reaped to salvation to serve you. Father, you deepen our commitment and conviction about the word of God and its sufficiency to save sinners. Its sufficiency to help us live our lives that are pleasing to you. It reveals everything we need to know for life and godliness. I pray for any in this room at this moment who's not a Christian who's headed for judgment, headed for damnation, headed for hell. Save them before they take their last breath. Open their blinded eyes to the truth of who Christ enters. Free them from the power of Satan. Deliver them from their own sin, their procrastination. Save sinners, Lord. For you are God who saves by nature a Savior. So we pray you save for your own glory, both now and forever and ever and ever, and for the good of the sinner. And we pray for those in this place who are saved. They're in your family. They have belonged to you for a while. And we just pray that you 
add them, the ones who are without a church home, where they may grow and live out the one another's. They may serve. They may be under shepherding leadership. All of these things, we pray you add them. We ask these things be done for your praise and glory as well. And we ask in the name of Christ.